Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey, feelers, and welcome to episode 126 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, hopefully with some leave, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron Prime, I I think. I cannot say for sure. I, let's hope there's only one of you, because if there were more, things might get complicated real quick. But maybe the other me is in France. Could be. Could be. I'm doing another podcast called Les Filins, Les Films. Something like that. Ooh, Les Emotional. Les Emotional. There we go. We could. Oh, man. Now we're getting global. I like les that. Les Emotional Cinema. I don't know. <laughs> we, create, we create our own affiliates for this thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's week two of Sci-Fi September, and we are taking a chance, attempting to give you guys a great conversation in what may be one of the most heady sci-fi films of the last couple of decades. Primer is an experience, to say the least. It lends itself to multiple viewings and multiple conversations. So in the interest of full disclosure, this will not be a puzzle-solving conversation. If you were looking for that, we apologize, but there are a ton of great resources out there that would help explain this movie far better than we can or even will attempt to. So we're going to just leave that to them. After all, we are feeling film, and that's what we're going to try to do because that's where we shine. Aaron, let's go ahead and get into this, and um, I'll just go ahead and give our obligatory spoiler alert. Again, watch the movie, watch it again, take some headache pills, and then watch it a third time. And if you haven't gotten it by then and haven't enjoyed it, well, just watch it again, because this is kind of an annual thing for me, okay? I uh, I, I take the trek, the mecca, if you will, into the world of Primer, and every time I do this, I am more and more enlightened and at the same time more and more confused because that's the kind of movie this is. It's only about an hour and a half long and you'd think that a story would be able to be told pretty clearly in that time frame, but alas, not quite so so much. So getting into one word takeaways, my word is deception, all right? I had a hard time trying to figure out how I could sum up this last experience with it and I think that it goes back to one of my favorite narrative devices, which is that use of the unreliable narrator. Memento is a fantastic example of this, where we as an audience are only being told only what we need to, to help push the story along. We're traveling with a character who is given limited amounts of information. And this movie is using that device, but it's using it on probably like a ratcheted up version using science and time travel obviously but it keeps me second guessing what's going on and who is what and what is who and there are such there's so many of uh, just a large amount of reveals throughout the story so this word definitely fits that but this time around and particularly for the podcast I know because we focus a lot on the emotional takeaway it's also fitting because it reflects the nature of the two characters that we're following, Abe and Aaron, and their relationship and, and what it's like by the end of the film. They can't trust each other. Their motives may or may not have changed. We're kind of ambiguous to that. And their friendship is essentially shattered because of their inability to trust one another. 
they went from being completely dependent on on each other with their strengths to losing that and walking literally walking away from their friendship. So I think deception for me pretty much sums up how I feel about this movie. That's fair. Uh, very, very fair. Now, you said at the beginning of this for listeners to watch it again and again and again, and I would say, or don't. Now, honestly, this is a disclaimer I'm going to give up front. I enjoy this film, and I am going to come off sort of negative in a, in a way, but it's more uh, in a fashion of I would like to discuss why. So um, I won't beat around the bush too much. I've always thought I was one of the cool kids, Patrick, because we've always said we love this movie. We've talked about it. Um, anytime it comes up online, I'm quick to jump in those conversations and be like, yeah, Primer, woo, one of the headiest sci-fi movies ever, and I'm awesome and nerdy, and I love it. The time travel aspect of this film is amazing, and time travel is probably my favorite overall sci-fi trope, which is in my favorite genre. So, I mean, this is a film that I'm definitely like pre-generated or predisposed or whatever the word is to enjoy. But man, this last viewing really made me question why I have championed this film for so long. While I find the depth and the intricacies of the multiple timelines really fascinating from a structural point, and honestly, I do really connect with the deterioration of Abe and Aaron's friendship that you mentioned due to this deception that you noted, it didn't exactly make for the most enjoyable movie watching experience this time around for me um it's the first time i've seen it as i haven't seen it in years so unlike you i don't watch it annually i mean it's been you know five six seven years it, it's been before the podcast and before i became uh, kind of an official film critic before i started watching you know five six seven hundred movies a year um so my palette has expanded and i don't know why but i'm just glad we're going to explore a little bit about why maybe my opinion of this has changed or my experience was much different. So, oh, I didn't think I ever gave my word. My word is frustrating. If you can't tell, like you probably didn't need me to say that listeners, but that's my word. My one more takeaway this time was frustrating. I was going to say negative Nancy, but that's two words. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, it's a nice segue because I wanted to talk first up about the story as a whole. Watching it this time around, I really came to realize it's pretty simple. I mean, there's nothing very complicated about the narrative itself. You've got these four, I guess, entrepreneurs who are working on maybe, I think it's a software package of some kind or I don't know, data retrieval. It's something that's it's not relevant to the story. And Abe and Aaron are our two characters that we're really following. This could get and, really confusing, by the way. Okay. I, I was in the, even in the notes, I was having trouble because I was like, every time I would write down Aaron, like Aaron is going to say something, meaning me. I, I was confused about was it going to be relayed to you in a way like when you saw that in the notes, was it going to be you thinking I was talking about Aaron the character? So this is this is going to be an exercise in uh, you know we don't know maybe I'm actually a copy of Aaron. Well, okay, I could believe that if you had like astrophysicist by your name or something or, or mechanical engineer or some other nerdy thing but in my timeline i never learned those things i'm derailing you go ahead but but in any case it's a very simple story it's nothing that 
And when I say simple, I mean, it's, there's nothing very complicated about the overall narrative. And I think that's where a lot of fun can be had within it. There are a number of different movies out there and stories in general where the time travel element enhances an otherwise simple story. Our short film is an example of that for the 48. We had to come up with something simple in order to utilize that particular element. And our hope was that it enhanced the enjoyment of the of the film experience. And so you've got a guy like Shane Carruth who actually directed, he wrote, he, he stars in it as Aaron. It makes sense that you're going to have a lot of these really mathematical, almost grounded theories, which may be an oxymoron, grounded theory, all these somewhat relatable scientific approaches to what they're doing because he comes from a place like that in real life. Like he is... He has a background in, I think it's mechanical engineering. I know engineering, math- yeah. Engineering, right. So it makes sense. And I I applaud the guy for coming up with a a very rewatchable movie, regardless of what the motive is behind it, whether it's enjoying it or just trying to figure things out. But to your point, I really wanted to open up the conversation about the story with a question. And it comes down to understanding and asking why do some viewers enjoy films like this that require multiple viewings and serve as really more of a puzzle to figure out and others really just want to be okay with a cohesive story? Yeah, this was, this was the big thing for me, this viewing, you know, I, when I sat down to watch it, I had cleaned my schedule, cleared my schedule out and didn't have any distractions because I knew that this was not the kind of film that I could be tweeting or talking on Facebook during. I knew the story for the most part. So I went into this kind of trying to piece things together in a different way. But what I found was that because I hadn't seen it in a long time, I'd forgotten kind of quite a bit. Um, And I quickly went from being engaged in it and i will say you know i was engaged right away because i think the film is very gripping when we get we start off with the answering machine and the the message from aaron or well we don't know who it is but it's a narrator and i love that trope it's very memento-esque in theory and the way that this plays out when we come to figure out later and so i knew that and so that that's very interesting and we're learning about the science behind this and they're really trying to kind of make this thing work. And I like that a lot. Once we got into the complicated multiple versions of them that we didn't understand who was who, it starts to become a chore. And I think where I landed was that my biggest problem is that there is a really fine line for me between where I want to have enough info to understand a film and still enjoy it while I'm watching And if you're asking me to take two or three or infinite viewings to even comprehend your plot, I'm not totally convinced that's a good story. It's not necessarily a good story, even if it's correctly made. And so for me, you know, we use the word puzzle in the intro, and I think that's fitting because it feels more like I'm completing a puzzle or I'm trying to solve a mystery, I'm playing a game of some sort, than I am just watching a movie to be entertained by a story that's going to start and finish. And so, whereas old me used to feel like I was in that camp that, man, I just want to put primer on and watch it five times in a row to figure it all out, 
this me, and we talk about this often, how viewings of films change. So maybe that's what this is all about for me personally. Um, but you know, it, it was different and I just, I had a hard time with the time jumps, man. Uh, you know, Shane Carruth does not give us hardly any indication of, of where we're at and who we're at. And Patrick, you linked a really awesome video in our notes, in our show notes. And I, and I wanted to tell listeners it's by a YouTuber named London City Girl. It's about 30 minute long video, eh, 25 ish. And it's got a visual guide to this entire plot, right? And it takes you from the very beginning of the movie with graphics. I had no idea that there were like five and six versions of the characters. And she's laying out like when we're seeing each character. And there's no way. I was going to come up with that on my own just by watching the film. There, there are things in this movie that I truly don't know that you can just grasp by watching it and comprehending what you see. It is, it is, you have to take it out of order and chop it all up and then put it together in a different order. And to me, I don't understand if that's really a movie, if that's the way a story should be told. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Okay. And it's very legitimate because I think there's some dissatisfaction that comes from when the puzzle really outshines the story as a whole, when the trying to figure this out and trying to figure that out become the reason that you watch the movie as opposed to just enjoying the narrative and getting in touch with the characters and the story. There's something to be said about that. There's also something to be said about the fact that narratives and particularly the way something goes linearly and playing with that, this feels more like an artistic expression like an artistic experiment in terms of creating something. And I think Carruth, I'm projecting, but I feel like he's, this is his directorial debut, maybe his writing debut, I'm not sure. And I think what makes it so appealing is the fact that it's complicated and almost overly so that even on multiple viewings, you don't get everything. And I think that comes for people like me who enjoy watching it multiple times. It comes from the, place that as people, I think we have a desire. We're, we're discoverers. I mean, we are, we're explorers. I mean, our country as Americans was founded on exploration and invasion too. So, but you know, we can avoid that portion of it for the sake of this conversation. The fact is we like mysteries and JJ Abrams is a great example of the guy that loves the mystery box and using something like lost and alias to put in twists and turns so that we feel like we're on that case. We're on that mystery solving adventure with the characters. I think what primer does almost to a fault is that it overcomplicates that mystery because by the end, even I've watched this probably 10 times each time I always have more questions and I always go, wait, I thought I had that in my head and I almost feel a sense like there's a weight in my head of going, okay, I'm trying to keep this blob of information in my head so that I can try to understand this later. And it quite literally is frustrating because I'm going, I'm, am I supposed to be holding on to this or am I supposed to be really latching on to this relationship between Abe and Aaron? Because that seems to have some weight to it as well. And I think that my frustration it's sort of in balance with my awe of the movie because the, you know, there is something to be said about a movie that even after multiple viewings, you still don't get like you need YouTubers to help you explain it. 
And to me, I think when you have someone like this YouTuber, to them, being able to solve that riddle, I think is satisfying. And so when I go and I watch this video and I go, oh, okay, I get all that. There's a sense of satisfaction. The problem is I don't get it from the movie. I get it from a resource later. Yes. And I have two things kind of on different tracks to coincide, you know, keeping with the movie's theme here. I'm going to go on different timelines with these thoughts. Okay. Um, one thing I wanted to mention there is does that make it more enjoyable for you when you watch the movie again? So you go watch London City Girls. We're, we're totally promoting your YouTube channel, London City Girls. So if you get viewers from this, yeah, you know, thank us. Um, you're going to watch this video and you're going to go, oh, aha, 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 right? Does that compel you to go watch the film again and try and see it differently? Or do you feel like you've solved the puzzle now and you understand it and so you don't need to watch it again? How does it, how does it work for you? For me, it works a lot like seeing an M. Night Shyamalan movie a second time after knowing what the twist is and being able to pick up clues in the movie that point to that. I recently watched Coherence, uh, which came out in 2013 this weekend, which I consider kind of a sister movie to Primer, even though the plot is completely different and even the the tropes are a little bit different. There's no time travel, but there's a lot of there's some science going on in there. And what I found is that coherence is a lot cleaner of a narrative. It's more coherent. Exactly. <laughs> I know. Need, I know. I turned you on to it. I, <laughs> yeah. Whereas you need it. a, quote, primer in order to understand this movie. Well done. And so I, I think for me, it's about the rediscovery and seeing the aha moments going back and finding like, oh, yeah. She pointed this out, so let me look for that and try to line that up and say, yep, you're right. The buttons on his shirt were actually white instead of blue. Yeah. Or this Abe, look at look at the watch. He's wearing it in this scene, but not in that scene. And I think when you have a roadmap, it allows you, look, egotistically, it allows you to feel smarter. Mm -hmm. And it also is less distracting as you're watching it because you're you now have kind of assurance that, okay, what I was thinking is true. Okay, so I can put that away. Now let's focus on this other stuff. However, the emotional side of it, I don't care any more, any less about these characters. I don't care any more, any less about their outcome. So there's no dramatic effect on me. It's really more about my, the satisfaction I get is the emotional takeaway okay. to solve the puzzle. So that's interesting that you say that because, you know, I found after I watched that video that I was, I had some aha moments and then I had some moments of, but I'm still really confused. Like now you've lost me even further. It feels like, and I did not feel compelled to go watch it again. And I think the reason is along the timeline of the second line of thought that I was, I had, which is, you know, we think about the ending of this film. I get what has happened at the end of the film. I understand enough to know that we have multiple versions of characters. I don't know if it's number two, three, four, five, six, but I know that there's versions and I know that one of them has snuck away to France and is yet again repeating the mistake of trying to continue to create this box, essentially. That is what is giving us the hint that is happening and that there has been a fractured relationship because of it that we have watched deteriorate over the course of the film. So I get that. I don't learn anything new about those aspects of the film getting from point A to B by understanding the method of getting from point A to B better. Does that make sense? So like 
those puzzle pieces, it's like there's a bridge from A to B, and then there's all the puzzling in between that is the majority of this film. And I don't find any joy in like figuring the middle part out because I already know what I already understand the overall plot here. Um, and so that's why it I get it didn't give me more joy to rewatch it this time around. Yeah. So what I would say is my response to it is that those two tracks, those two things that are happening, the discovery and puzzle solving and all that. And the overall narrative, getting across that bridge, are independent of each other. They do not coincide with one another at all. So you either watch for one or you watch for the other. They have no effect on one another. Now, personally, from a frustrating standpoint, they probably do. I don't need all this confusion to get me from point A to point B. Tell your story and get it done. I can see that regard, that that element of it. But I also know that I'm never going to give this this film an emotional weight that I would give something like a memento or like a secret life of Walter Mitty, because I don't think that's the point. I think Carruth is like, rather than using a trope to tell his narrative, I think he's using a narrative to amplify his trope. That's kind of what I'm seeing is that the emphasis here is on the time travel and all the crazy stuff that happens. And yes, there are repercussions and we'll talk about those. But I really think that he's putting the spotlight on his his genius, on his smartness, on his nerdiness. That's why people call it pretentious. And and I'm not saying it's pretentious. I'm not using that word as my own definition of what I think the film is. But that is why people call this pretentious. And the ones that who are turned off by it are turned off by it, I think, is because of that. I agree with you. I think it feels at times like – and this guy's brilliant. Shane Carruth is amazing. Like the the, the – Genius it took to come up with this complex interactions and put them and then deconstruct it, right? So you got to, you got to figure it out from the big picture and then you got to deconstruct it and mix it all up and then do it in a way where you understand it and that you think it will confuse people to the point that they'll need to seek out and find these clues. So you kind of have to do it backwards and it's brilliant. It is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant piece of filmmaking. It's just a matter of. I guess it boils down to, I don't necessarily think it's pretentious either. I don't think it's about stroking his ego. I think this is a creative person who had an idea and he did it something and he did it very well. And it just so happens that there's just a much smaller audience in the movie watching world in this format of media and entertainment that he's looking for that are going to enjoy that the same way he is. It's Look, just it's about an, his audience size. It's an, it's, an exer- it's an exercise in art is what it is. Red Giant Films who I enjoy a ton, they put out a, a good number of short films. You know why? I love that one. The one Do you know why? Yes. The, and one's actually called like Plot Device. That's the do one I what, love. Yeah. The, yeah. And do, do you know why they do that? It's not so their short films can get put in can, although they're really high quality short films. They can. It's so they can they promote can. the software. They, they can. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's so they can promote the, the software for Red yes, Giant. Correct. It is a byproduct. The short film is the icing on the cake of what they're really trying to sell you. And I think that what Carruth is doing is this is what he knows. He wants to try his hand at filmmaking. It's not a fantastic movie. It's not one that is going to sit next to Interstellar or I keep going back to Chris Nolan, I guess, because he's awesome or a J.J. Abrams movie. And I don't know that Shane Carruth ever wants that. Again, I'm projecting on somebody I don't know. So if you're actually listening to this, Shane, then come on to the show and we t- we can talk. But I don't think that he's, 
I don't think that he's doing it to be pretentious. I think he's doing it because that's what he knows. And if it's me and I have that kind of knowledge and I want to go into filmmaking, I'm going to use what I know. That's what writers do. Writers write what they know. And a guy who understands this world of mathematics and engineering and science is going to take that and say, hey, how can I create a time travel movie that uses that somewhat creatively? And to me, that's why I think that his narrative is really more of the the mechanism to express and explore his ability to to use his his knowledge. Yeah. So I don't think that's pretentious. I just think that's creative. Yeah, that's I, I agree. I agree. Whether you whether people like it or not, people don't like everybody doesn't like Van Gogh. Doesn't mean that Van Gogh is not an expert artist. Um, right. But right. okay, cool. So now we've totally docked that to death. Um, let's talk about good things that we both like because there's a lot that I do like, and I want to get off the. I mean, this wasn't negative either. This is just this is a conversation about how we both responded to a film differently and how I'm quite sure that a vast majority of our listeners are going to be split as well and have responded to this. So um, with that being said, there is a ton that there is to talk about that I like. So, Well, why don't you start it off? Tell me something that, that really pulls you in. Right there at the beginning. Like I said, with the – well, I like the device of the – the voice message, because it gives me something to wonder about the entire film. That's the mystery mm -hmm. I was curious about, right? Who is on that voicemail and what is going on and why is Aaron calling himself and all these things. Um, but the film, I think, again, probably because of Shane Carruth being an actual inventor and an engineer type, you know, it really does capture the excitement and the amazement of invention to me. I love, love, love the first arc of this film. I love seeing them testing the machine early on, worrying about is it dangerous or not there's um a, a great moment as well when they when abe feels like he has gotten aaron to believe him and he's like we can publish and he's like he's so excited because i mean that's what you do right you publish your findings and you're able to support them with evidence and you've you've succeeded you've you've created something um i loved how the ingenuity of their time travel world worked and how that plays out in little details like perhaps the handwriting um, that's a great question mark is seeing their hands shaking and wondering why might that be and you know this is one of the aspects of the internet where it did enhance my viewing because i found this theory where somebody had proposed that perhaps it was because at the beginning when the, when the machine was just barely working, they didn't really know what it was yet. They had had their hands on top of it with the, I don't know what they're called, donut holes, little paper hole things. They were putting little sprinkle paper in it and that perhaps it was on. And now their hands have essentially traveled in time by milliseconds or seconds. And so they're, they're out of sync. They're not perfectly in line. Of course, there's obviously the body, you know, Aaron number whatever ends up getting so sick that his ear starts bleeding. So there's physical ailments that come from this time travel world as well. And I just, I loved all of that. I loved seeing them go through that process. I like things like thinking about playing the stock market. There's a great line by, I don't remember who it is, so I'll get them confused a lot. But one of them says, you know, which stock do we, do we want or you know, why do we want that one? What does it do? And the other one says, it doesn't matter if it goes up. That's all that matters. Like the end of the baseline. And then one of my favorite scenes, because you and I are college basketball fans is them discussing this basketball game that they bet on. 
and they're trying to figure out the point score. This this is probably like literally almost my connecting point. I, I kid you not. <laughs> he's sitting there and he's listening to this game and he goes, wait a second. They fouled with 15 seconds left. That's And he's doing the math in his head and he's like, okay, hold on. So they're supposed to win by this score. But now they've just made it very difficult to obtain that score. And so he's trying to calculate all of the scenarios that could play out in the game randomly in which it will result in the scenario where the score that they think is supposed to happen actually happens. And it does. But that's not the point. The point is like the calculation that's taking place. And I love seeing that because I feel like that's what I would be doing. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of little subtle moments that made me kind of laugh a little bit. There's it's on that same I think it's in that same scene where they're watching the basketball game and Aaron goes, <laughs> Abe has just sat down with this big giant cupcake or something, this muffin. He's about to dive into it. And Aaron goes, are you hungry? I haven't yeah. eaten since, I haven't eaten since later this afternoon. <laughs> and he spent the entire like last five minutes of a conversation, like intricately showing us in close up Abe making this meal and like, pulling the paper away and like getting a fork and like setting it down and then coming back to it. like, it's very mm-hmm. slow burn. And then for Aaron just to so quickly be like, you're hungry. Let's go get some food. Yeah. It's, it's a great, it's just, it's a great, uh, it's friendship. Little, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a great aside. It's a great little kind of beat of comedy because we've been kind of in a place of discovery and wonder and kind of like, okay, what's going on? Cause it feels kind of dramatic and feels kind of like not really espionage, but a little bit more serious. So that was a nice light hearted moment for them. I like the first act too. And I particularly like the way that we set up Abe and Aaron in connection with their other two partners. There's this great conversation at the dinner table where you get a lot of little backstory about the company, about what they're doing. It seems like they've been doing that this thing for a while. And Aaron has been really kind of pilfering money out of his own account to help support the company. And then later on as Abe and Aaron are, I don't know if they've made the discovery they're if they're pushing the time machine forward here or if they've, because they're working on something together prior to when they make the time machine discovery, whatever they're doing, they're basically siphoning off parts from different things. Like I think Aaron pulls a muffler or something from his car and gives it to Abe and Abe's like, you sure this is going to work? Yeah, I don't think it's needed. And if not, we can just get the one from my truck. I mean, it's just the the level of dedication that Aaron has in particular and the way he is passionate about making this thing work. What you see is two things. You see that and you also see a little bit of a disconnect between those two and the partners. Like, I feel like we're really shown early on this company is really just sort of a slight moneymaker. It's what brought them together, but they're really doing their own thing as 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 pairs. Abe and Aaron are doing their own thing. And then Philip and his guy are doing their own thing. There's a little bit of kind of angst between the four of them. And in particular, between the two pairs. I like seeing that because I think that foreshadows a lot of the division that takes place between Abe and Aaron, where their passion starts getting a little bit more skewed and turns into either misguided or borderline obsession with this thing that they've discovered. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, I don't even, I honestly don't care about the other two characters. Like, they I don't think you're meant to. They could have not anything. been in this movie. And I, I almost find them as a distraction in a sense because it's like, eh, they're just extra people to wonder about <laughs> um, because they don't really play enough of a role to matter much. But you're right. It, you know, it definitely you can tell like these two friends are doing something that they are 
obsessively passionate about. And it's like, hey, we brought on a coder to do this this part, and we brought on this other guy who has this skill that can do this part. But really, these two have a different level of dedication, different level of passion um, mm-hmm. for what they're creating than the two side partners. Yeah, I also like the fact that Abe and Aaron weren't trying to figure out time travel, that it happened to happen on them. Like They were trying to create a device that actually altered a gravitational field, like it lessened gravity. Now, what the applications were, we don't know. The voiceover kind of speculates on a little bit of that early. And then the voiceover really kind of goes in depth. We didn't know when they made the big discovery about the machine, as we're going to call it, then... Then they started thinking more about that. But I love the fact that it didn't, it, it started out from a place of, again, fringe science. Hey, let's check this out. We don't know why they're doing it, but it leads to time travel. It leads to a box that's, that's like crude and it's not a, you know, kind of like the DeLorean, you know, it's not what you necessarily pick as a time travel machine, but it makes sense. Maybe the DeLorean didn't, but whatever. It's it's a machine that is being crafted not for its coolness or its sci-fi-ness, but because of its practicality. It's a box. That's mm-hmm. all it is. Yeah. And and the fact that they are being very practical in how they build certain things and how they approach certain things, I think that's very – it's different from what we see in time travel movies. It is. And it's also the way that he makes this movie. And I, I know the technicals of this film kind of mirror – the actual narrative of the film in a lot of ways, you know, it's filmed with, it's very low budget. I've read both under sub sub 8,000 and I've read sub 7,000 regardless. doesn't really matter that extra thousand dollars. This is a cheap, cheap, cheap movie. And, uh, and you can tell, right? I mean, it's very, very low on costumes. These like, they wear the same thing, the whole movie minus, you know, maybe a different tie to distinguish different versions of themselves and things like that. And, you know, it's got like this um, storage unit place in this box. Like you said, it's not a fancy intricate device, which makes sense because these two regular dudes who are inventing something in their garage aren't going to have access to make some, you know, high level NASA type gear that, you know, is part of their time travel device. But what I, what I both loved and thought was also a bit problematic is the way that, the film takes this voyeuristic approach where we're on, we're like watching it happen from afar. And at many times what I like about it is the way that it appears to us on screen. We'll see characters kind of hidden behind a half hidden behind a door, having a conversation, or we'll see them overhearing something in the background of, of a scene. I loved those aspects of the film. Um, it was like we were spying on them when they were spying too. In in a lot of ways, it was it was pretty neat, but it's also it's also a, it's a trouble because you know in a sense, Shane Carruth doesn't seem like he cares that the audience is watching this movie sometimes, and so that can be problematic because we we get that feeling as well. Like he doesn't do enough to show us when we're moving from one thing to another. There's no, he's not a director. He's an engineer who made a movie. And that's very clear to me. Oh, I agree. And and there's a really great moment that really articulates that. And it's the scene at the, like a cookout or something. And you get these four guys sitting around. Reminded me of crazy, stupid love, by the way. 
It did. I did. I, I can see that. But you have two different sets of conversations going on at once. You've got one conversation that we're supposed to be honing in on about Rachel's dad and how you're not supposed to call him Mr. Whatever his name is. You're supposed to call him by his, his first name because he feels like, you know, if you, if you call him by that, he's going to think, you know, he's going to treat you like an 11 year old. At the same time, you have this other conversation with these other two people who are talking about how many times you should flip a burger. I had to turn the subtitles on because I could not make out what was actually being said and what I was supposed to be listening to. And I agree with you. It was very distracting, but it was also very real because it felt natural. It felt like we were just sitting there kind of going, okay, I'm just going to be drinking my beer. And this is the conversation I'm hearing out of my left ear, burgers and calling by his first name. What is that? And I think that adds to the, to the grittiness of the, the overall narrative. Some of the other technical stuff that I think plays into it is that muted color palette, lots of blues and grays, the handheld cameras that create a real good sense of just being right there with the, with the folks. And I think that in some ways they enhance my overall movie experience, but just barely because equally as much as they can enhance it, they also distract because I don't know what information I'm supposed to be picking up. Like, am I, I'm looking at a, the scene in the, the water fountain when they're looking for Abe's or, or Aaron's cat, which I felt was kind of arbitrary. I, I couldn't really tell what was going on because it was dark and then it got light. And so, yeah, I, I think that definitely amplifies the inexperience of Carruth as a director. And there wasn't really a legit cinematographer on, on site. For, no. for eight grand, you're not going to get nope. a legit cinematographer. And I think this might go back to what we were talking about, about the pretentiousness. I think it was just what he had. And that right. may be what elevates this movie. It's like, oh my gosh, he did so much with $8,000 when he's probably like laughing all the way to the bank going, I really didn't do much. I just grabbed my dad's Sony <laughs> handheld and made a movie with it. Yes. And I it just happened to be, you know, hit the right chord somewhere. So agree. A hundred percent. To the point of, I like it more than I dislike it. Like, these things work for me enough, just enough, like you said, just just a slight. It's like a 50, 51 percent, you know, in the positive side. Yeah. Um, and then the score for me, the score elevates this film another mm -hmm. notch because I love it. it. It's this very simple piano almost all the time. And it blends in completely seamlessly. It's not overpowering. Sometimes you don't even know what's happening. It's so subtle. And I, it's one of the aspects I never expected to stand out when I rewatched it this time around. I was like, man, why am I thinking about the score? Like, this doesn't have like some great composer attached to it. And we don't even really need that much of a score for this kind of story. But it, it was a very big piece of what drew me into the story at times, I thought. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that it, it balances the naturalistic feel of the, of the film pretty well that keeps us in knowing that we're not just watching a home movie, we're watching something that actually has purpose. And, and I think that that's, it's, it's a really weird tension there because in some ways it feels like a home movie. In other ways, it feels like a feature film because it's got combinations of those things. And it's 50, 50 if Carruth and the gang were intentional about using that muted color palette or things being blurry focus or not. But that's the beauty of of watching a movie is that you can be very subjective and say, oh yeah, I bet they meant to do that because that really made it feel good. And then across you know across the continent, you got my best friend saying, no, I think that 
that was just a mistake and it just was very consistent with the rest of things that were very low budget about the movie. Both are very valid arguments. Yeah. Well, I was going to say there's, there's something that I um, really did latch onto as far as kind of an emotional theme Mm -hmm. that was in this. and, And it's, it's not really explored much. And this is going to be the problem with talking about a lot of this, these emotional themes is they're, they're pretty confined to like one or two examples of things. But the one that I noticed was risk and mm-hmm. it brought up questions for me. They didn't play risk at all in this movie. Aaron, where did you see that? It was happening in the attic. Aaron was entertaining himself <laughs> by playing because there were probably multiple versions of himself that he yes, was playing, he's risk, playing risk against himself to see if he could win. That was part of the test. Um, Aaron five has Australia. <laughs> Sorry. There's uh there's two things that, that I think of about risk in this movie. And one is related to Abe. Abe in the first act of this film, leading up to him revealing to Aaron that he has time traveled and he's trying to get Aaron to to do it and and learn for himself. But Abe has taken risks. Now, we learn later that Aaron has as well, but we can't always explain all of this while we're having this conversation. So Abe has taken these risks and he feels more reckless. And you listen to the dialogue. He seems to be kind of quicker on the, I'm just going to try this kind of aspects. And Aaron's like, ah, but what's the repercussion of doing that? So he early on takes a lot of risk. He says, there's this great scene where uh, one of them says, does it hurt? Oh, it's Aaron. I think Aaron is asking Abe. He says, does it hurt? And he says, yeah, yeah, it does. Um, those are like the real questions that I would ask, right? To me, that grounds the film. This, this idea of risk and, and the impact it would have on you physically and actual to your body. Um, he also says at one point, Aaron, I can imagine no way in which I think this thing would be considered anywhere near remotely safe. All I know is that I spent six hours in there and I'm still alive. You still want to do it? And that's, again, he's taking risk. And then Aaron, on the other side of this, I really latched on to the fact that he has a wife and daughter. They're like side pieces to this film that we only see in certain scenes as like side characters in the background for the most part. And they're used in a couple times of dialogue. I think Abe references them and says, you know, aren't you going to do this for whatever their names are? But I think about... this risk that I just mentioned, this, he just said, you know, this is nowhere near remotely safe. I have no idea what's happening and what we're doing, but we're going to try it for science. And I latched onto this and I was like, man, you have responsibility to this woman that you're, you know, the husband of and this daughter that you're the father of. What about them? What happened? What if something happens to you? It's not all about you and your desire to be creative and inventive. You have to think about them as well and i didn't feel like aaron was doing that i felt like maybe he was taking too much risk and i just wondered if this connected with you at all or if it was just something i picked up on it was something i picked up on probably not as deeply as as you did but it called into question the changing of motivation of these two characters so you you said it best you said abe started out as the aggressive one and by the end of the movie, Aaron has basically drunk the Kool-Aid and at least a version of himself has drunk the Kool-Aid and now 
it's what causes their eventual division is Abe wants to stop and Aaron's like, no. And to me, that's probably the biggest emotional connection that I made was the fact that you had a guy who has a right to be stable, has a right to be grounded and fixed on something that is very tangible, his family, who ends up becoming the guy who essentially, again, a version of himself leaves his family for the sake of this thing. And it's not just for, to bet on the stock market. I mean, who knows what the repercussions are? Who knows what he's trying to do with this? Does, because that's the other thing. The, the mystery is that we don't really know what French Aaron, I'm calling that, is going to do with the machine. And it's left to be ambiguous. I really think it's because Shane ran out of story. But you have this ambiguous conclusion to the life of Aaron in all aspects of it. You have Aaron who went to France. You have Aaron who's at the airport, not knowing what he's going to do. And then you have Aaron Prime who is stuck in the attic. And maybe he's going back to live his life with his family. So it's, that's, it's yeah, that's it's what really, I believe would be happening. Yes. So for me, I'm going Aaron, as he exists in multiple ways, is getting the best of all worlds. He's getting to be selfish by going independent and becoming a time-traveling tycoon. He's still got his family and living life just completely oblivious to the time-travel thing. And then I don't know what the other Aaron's going to do, the one that was at the airport. Maybe he's... Who knows? But overall, I think that diminished the relationship and the wife and daughter aspect of it, because I always knew there was a copy or maybe the original Aaron that was always going to have that stability with him. And what, for me, what that brought up is this interesting idea that you have multiple versions of yourself running around in the same universe, in the same world. Like you ha actually have the ability to interact with another version of yourself. And it came across to me, interestingly enough as a sort of a sibling relationship there's this there's this wonderful scene that's done through voiceover and just visuals where you see Aaron I think it's Aaron 3 I'll call him airport Aaron is talking to French Aaron convincing him to to leave he's saying look I've already done everything that you were going to do so you don't need to worry about that and then French Aaron just takes off and that blew my mind because I'm going, you're having a conversation with yourself. You're convincing yourself to do something different. And it reminded me of our conversation in Moon about the value of these entities. In that case, it was clones. But in this case, it's actual people. It's just copies of people that are biologically equal. They just live in a different time period, whether it's two hours or eight hours. So it raised the question for me, and I wanted to ask this to you. If you could talk to your past self who exists in this parallel world, first of all, would you do that? Or would you, would you try to avoid him completely? But if you had to talk to him or if you did interact with him, would you advise him differently based on the future knowledge that you have? Or would you lead him astray? I mean, how would, how would you react to that? 
Oh, this is why we love sci-fi, and this is why we hate sci-fi. Um, <laughs> so it's great to think about these things. It's terrible when someone puts you on the spot and asks you this question in public, nonetheless, essentially. Um, I, I would, I will answer it this way. I would love to believe that I have the willpower and self-restraint and smarts to steer very clear of any interaction with my past self and let things just go on their merry way um, as they would. That being said, there are distinct choices I've made in my life that I would 100% without question tell myself not to make and to go about things differently. Even risking a different timeline to me would be worth that. And it's it's scary. It's very scary. And I think it has to all boil down. I think how you answer this question boils down to your list of priorities in your life, right? So it all comes down to like what matters most. Those choices I make that I'm fixing from 10, 12 years ago could wipe out podcasting, right? Something that is probably the biggest joy I've had in my life in a decade. Um, it could wipe out the way that my kids have grown up to be incredible human beings. They could grow up completely different. Would I take the calculated risk because the thing that I want to fix is more important to me than anything else in the world? Yeah, I probably would. I don't know that I would ever sit down and say this is the right decision. It's one of those things where I would knowingly take a chance. Uh, yeah. even if even if it the even if it's probably a bad idea. True. That's true. So yeah. my story would make for a good movie. I think so. And we can get Shane Carruth to direct it. So what we're going to do is, or maybe Chris Nolan. We'll get Chris Nolan to direct it. There we go. And we'll get Hans Zimmer to score it. How about that? Oh, please. Yes. Yeah. The Life of Aaron, 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 Aaron. We'll just call it that. I, I've been thinking about this since I, I watched it. And the the thing that I think Primer does differently than other movies that deal with time travel and running into your past self is that these multiple copies of Aaron in particular still exist parallel to each other. So, and there's a great conversation at the gas station where Abe and Aaron are talking and Aaron's like, look, I don't know what to think about this whole, you know, if I went back and killed my mom, if it would make a difference. I really don't think about that stuff. I think that was Caruso's way of saying, look, I'm going to throw out the whole, hey, if I went back and changed the past, would it affect this version of myself who's talking to this guy right now? I really think he threw that out. And he said, in my world, anytime a copy's made, it's going to exist until it doesn't need to exist anymore. And so when you have, I think what what Shank Ruth was doing was he was saying, anytime you make a change to the timeline, essentially that version of your character is now intact. He's solid. He doesn't change. Like you essentially have created these multiple universe, multiple characters in a, in a single universe. Instead of a multiverse, you've got multiple versions of a person living in this singular universe. So that being said, that's where I feel like Caruth is sort of maybe unintentionally creating a world where you have more of like a brother brother relationship as opposed to a copy of yourself 
which is why that conversation between the two Aaron's is so intriguing to me and the way it's shot. It feels like there was a struggle, but then they just talked it out <laughs> and you Aaron, not you Aaron, but obviously the Aaron in the movie convinces himself to not do a certain thing. And so he walks away and is living his life. And so I'm thinking about that and I'm going, if there were a copy of myself that existed, if I were able to go back and affect the past where I could actually talk to my copy and that would actually create a brand new version, that would be incredibly interesting. I kind of feel like I would have some regret, especially if I caused him to make a choice that a different choice than I made. Like if I made a choice that I thought was bad and I convinced him to make the opposite choice, seeing how his life would play out. I wonder if I would be envious of the benefits from that choice, from making the other ones and watching his life play out. Exactly. Yes, I think you would. There would be a, a conflict in you and in all of us between envy and pride and happiness, joy for that version of ourselves that got to live out this fantasy reality that we didn't. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe what it comes down to in this scenario is your your yourself <laughs> is going forward in time, having lived the path that you took. So there's no need for him to go and live that same path because you already did it. Like you've done that side, you know, like you're giving yourself an opportunity to do something completely different and have a different life and a different set of circumstances where, you know, you you're still existing. So you all of the stuff that you've chosen in your own timeline doesn't gone away. Your choices exist mm -hmm. and led you to this moment. So you're not undoing them and starting no. over. Right. Like you said, it's parallel. It's a different thing. So, you know, in that scenario, then I absolutely 100% without question would much easier be for me to tell myself, yeah, do this thing different, please. But that's the thing is you wouldn't get the satisfaction of living that life, though. You would just no. see it as a third person point of view by saying, right. oh, great. I hope you do that. So, again, it's a weird relationship because yeah. it's, because even if you convinced him to make the same choice, his life would still be at some point probably diverged and you know, he may make a different choice later on than what you made for for some other for some other thing. And I think the world of primer, the, the rules of primer say as long as the past version of yourself makes the same choices that you do, they're essentially just gonna be like just right behind you living that same life. Mm -hmm. But the moment they make a different choice now they've created their own new set of circumstances. And so I wonder if we have an effect on a past version of ourselves, whether it's six hours ago or six years ago, would we be, I'm, I'm just kind of questioning the, the relationship of that and wondering if we could be proud of the fact that, hey, six-year-old or 12-year-old or 18-year-old Patch, instead of going to this college, he decided to bust his butt and get better grades and he's ended up in this school. Would I be proud of that guy? Would or I guess it would depend on the choice I'm asking him to make. I'm just wondering if I'd be envious of seeing if he became a multimillionaire because of choices that he made that started with me saying, Hey, go to this school instead, that kind of thing. Well you probably would if if you were aware of what actually was going to take place down the road. Yes. Uh you know, it it, it all boils down to do you, is your current self willing to make these choices out of an act of kindness it has yeah. to be almost like an act of kindness like hey i'm gonna do you a solid and i'm gonna tell you keep an eye on apple buy in when it's cheap you know like i'm just helping you out i'm doing you a favor um on a big level 
on, yes. and it's different because it's a copy of yourself. But if you sure. don't think of it like that, if you think of it more as a brother, like you said, yeah. then it's a lot easier to understand why you would make that choice. I just think that would make a really interesting story is to see if I change my mm-hmm. past self and it created a a dual timeline or a dual world, a, a, a same world, but two relationship type thing. How would that affect Patrick prime as opposed to Patrick one? I don't know. It's, it's, I took all my Advil when I watched the movie again, Patrick. So you're, you're, you're gonna hurt my head. Okay. Well, I don't want to <laughs> hurt your head. What I want to do is get to your connecting point. Well, I'm glad. Can I go first? Because this is actually a perfect tie in with what you just asked me. Okay. <laughs> Crazy, crazily enough. Um, yeah, you know, my connecting point was pretty strong, honestly. And it, I love that again, because there were so many aspects of this that I just didn't, didn't feel like lined up for me. It was good to have that emotional connection. And since I kind of already secretly know what yours is, I will say I connected with that too. But, um, <laughs> for mine, the strongest moment for me was Aaron's lying on the couch in his house and he's just eating and they're just talking. And this is one of those few scenes I was talking about earlier where his wife and his daughter are just hanging out in the background of the kitchen. He's having a conversation with Abe and he's telling this story about how Platt, this random character that gets mentioned in the past had cheated them out of an invention. Like that's Platt's role in the story. Some, some guy they knew in the, in their past. And Aaron wants to go back in time and punch him and change a little bit of how he reacted to allowing this to happen. Right. He says, I wish there was a way that I could do it. Then go back in time and tell myself not to, I just want to know what it feels like. And that, that line, I, I perked up, my smile came on and I was like, yes, I just want to know what it feels like. Now we're talking my language. Abe tries to be really smart in this moment. He says, no, we can't do that. This is where the switch starts happening and Abe starts becoming more responsible and Aaron's like coming more reckless and narrator Aaron at this point says, but the idea had been spoken and the words wouldn't go back after they'd been uttered aloud. Now there is some serious truth to that in real world application in life, in our lives. Anytime something is spoken like that, you can't put the words back. You can't unsay something. You can't undo something. This is why Twitter is so dangerous for people. (laughs) You know, it lives forever, essentially, if you make a mistake. And I love this concept because there is 100% no reason and no real world application for Aaron to go back and punch Platt over this invention being stolen. It doesn't change anything and it doesn't fix anything, but yet this idea lingered in his head and he couldn't get it off his mind and why is that because it affects our feelings because ultimately for all the science going on and all the mumbo jumbo being spoken and the desire to invent and create and all of this on a base level Aaron had experienced these negative emotions and he was now thinking of time travel as a way to kind of seemingly take revenge for that or if he chose he could erase experiencing this negative emotion in the first place and even more than them making money which like they said is always going to be the number one thing people think of when they have the ability to do time travel once that's passed i feel like this is 
the real number one thing that most humans would eventually utilize time travel for if it actually existed would be to change the way that a scenario played out because of how it made them feel. So it all comes down to feelings. And I just I had this brilliant realization and it made the movie wonderful for me. Well, good. Good. Even though your headache is now coming back, hopefully it's subsiding because of that connecting point. Rehash. <laughs> well, this is a time travel movie. And for, well, it's a time travel movie, so independent of that, I'm going to pick two connecting points, but they relate to the same thing. So it's our show, whatever. We can do what we want. And those two moments are the reveal of Abe to Aaron, like early in the film, next to the U-Haul place that he's been time traveling before. And then later, the reveal that Aaron had been time traveling actually before Abe. In both instances, there was this moment of real surprise for me. And it goes back to the first part of our conversation, that odd discovery. Wow, I didn't see that. I'm going to have to go back and watch and see if there are any clues. But particularly when Abe says to Aaron, I just want you to understand that what's next is not a prank. I wouldn't do that to you, and I'm not doing that to you. I know that you feel like you're being tricked or made fun of, but you're not okay. There's this real sincerity to what Abe is saying. It's, it's almost as if he's asking forgiveness for this deception up to that point. Because, of course, that next moment we see Aaron put the, go or put the goggles, put the binoculars, binoculars on, and we see Abe, the other Abe, walking out, walking into the facility with a, an oxygen tank. And he's like, what is that? And I'm like, what is that? Did I just see that? So at the same time, I'm like responding like Aaron is. But it's that moment coupled with the moment after Abe drugs his original self, goes to the park bench and only to find out that Aaron has been doing the same thing only longer. In that moment, all we see is this facial expression from Abe staggering back from not only the exhaustion of time travel, but I'm going to guess, emotionally speaking, this shock of knowing that Aaron was in the no longer, further complicating things. Like, I can't even imagine what was going through Abe's head in that moment, besides, I hope I don't hit the ground too hard. I mean, both are such great reveals that as an audience, they further reinforce the fact that a story built on deception when it's told well, can be a fantastic experience. And I think that Primer has the potential to give me that fantastic experience. I just think it gives me a little too much deception there. But regardless, I think those two moments really heighten what we see at the end of the movie, which is that division between Abe and Aaron. I mean, in those two moments, there's there's no trust. You've lost it nope. completely. No, nope. and it, you're absolutely right, man. And that's, that's why it, it, it was meaningful for me too. And, you know, it's hard not to think about it in terms of who's your best friend when you're watching this movie because you're watching a, two best friends and you think about what are, do you do with your best friend together that could come between you. And so my mind actually was going to us and I was like, man, gosh, what if there's this crazy timeline where something happens with the podcast and now like it's created this division between and in that is touching. It's emotional and it mm -hmm. it's awful and devastating to see this relationship fall apart for me more than I care about the time travel at the end of this movie. I care that Aaron and Abe have gone their separate ways with Abe head down shoulders crunched, just 
moseying and moping out of an airport completely dejected with his life changed forever. Right. Um, and he's lost the person that he cares about most essentially. And, and that's, that's sad. Um, so I think on that level, it's great. I love that that's your connecting point because it does, it does give the movie enough emotion to kind of overcome some of these frustrations that I talked about there at the beginning. Yeah. I think, I think the back half of the movie, particularly the last part of the third act really finished strong in a lot of ways and it had its problems, but I think overall, I think it made the movie work better for me um, than it would for, for other folks that make it kind of confused and whatever, which I'm one of those guys that gets confused too. But anyway, well, thank you guys for listening. This has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I think it's time for a nap um, or at least maybe a little bit lighter fare for, uh, for us. So hopefully I still can't, week... I still can't believe you watched coherence in between watching primer and then talking about primer. I, I feel like you were asking for your brain to be literally fractured. Dude, I'm telling you, this is, yes, you're, you're right. I went into it thinking, Hey, I'm going to watch primer with eight people instead of just two. And it's not that that's the thing is watching coherence having not seen it for maybe a year and a half, two years, I really didn't know how I'd forgotten how it finished and watching it just to give a little plug. I'm actually, I've, I've plugged it twice for two other people today to say, Hey, go watch this. And I think what makes it work for me is the fact that the explanation is there. There is a great moment of what's happening in the movie that gets clearly explained. And then the ride after that, becomes I get the same kind of response, but it's a lot more clear and I don't feel as frustrated and I don't feel as confused having to watch like I want to watch it again right now because mm -hmm. I love more about it than I do primer. I enjoy the journey more too. And and we were we listeners, we chose this. So we were when we were setting up our podcast schedule for sci fi September, it was either gonna be primer or coherence because they are very similar in vain to kind of the type of mental experience they give you. Um, so we will certainly be talking about coherence at some point. I'm quite sure. Yeah. But until then, talk to us about this movie or other movies and anything you want to talk about. Uh, you can find me on social media. I'm at shoeless patch S H O E L E S S p-a-t-c-h on facebook and twitter the best way to get a hold of me is just to shoot me a little at mention me i'll respond and at least put a like on your comments especially if it's snarky because i like that stuff you can find me floating around in our amazing facebook group where there is a ton of conversation going on about all things movies we've got a fantastic community of people that bring a a lot to the table when it comes to discussion opinions viewpoints things like that so if you haven't joined please do and um, it's a really great community of positive honesty which is what we tr try to promote here on the show Aaron, what about you where can people find you uh, you can find me on twitter at feelin film using that account mostly now and also very active in the facebook group um, i'm excited to continue sci-fi september next week patrick we are talking about one that I love, and that is Sunshine, uh, the Danny Boyle film. And many people are divisive about this film when it comes to its ending, so I'm pretty excited for you to get your eyeballs on it and find out what you think uh, and talk through some of the themes and things that are going on in this one. 
Um, so I'm really, really excited for that next week. And then in the meantime, at some point during this next week, I get to rewatch uh, Stephen King's The Mist, the film version, and uh, do a little PyroQuest uh, podcast reaction on that one. That was the Facebook group's pick for me to cover next on that second show by request that we just uh, started up. So keep an eye out for that one in that feed. You can follow that show separately. Just go to iTunes and, I don't know, search for by request. Or actually, there's links in the show notes to the list episode you're listening to right now. Just click on it. It's a lot easier. And hit subscribe. And then you don't ever have to worry about it. So, yep. Looking forward to that. And there's so many movies coming out this week. If you're listening to this on release week, there are like four indie movies I'm dropping reviews for that are coming out somewhere in the world this week. And then we have The Predator, which is also kind of sci-fi. So I'm excited for that. That's to not be coming kind of out. sci-fi. That is sci-fi. Okay, yeah, it's very sci-fi. So I'm excited. <laughs> I'm really pumped to see The Predator and then A Simple Favor starring the lovely Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick. <sighs> Yes, I know. We are super excited to see how that one turns out as well. So there's a lot of good stuff uh, coming to the theaters. Oscar season is right around the corner. And uh, yeah, just stick with us, though, for Sci-Fi September as we head that way. All right. Thanks, Aaron. And thank you guys for listening. That's all for us. Until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling positive.